in Massachusetts, COVID really took on a, a different life. You know, I think in, in some ways that the pandemic kind of started here, but it, it also, it was at its peak here in Massachusetts. So we wanted to be careful with that. We wanted to be respectful. And ultimately we, we were the last state to open up, but I think we did it in a way, a way that was beneficial for everyone under the circumstances we were all facing. I'm Roberto, engineer turned PGA tour player turned businessman. And I'm Dan, businessman on the weekdays and average golfer on the weekends. On the Course Record Show, we talk to some of the smartest people in the golf business and get the inside stories and strategies driving the business of golf forward. This episode is brought to you by Hub International. When I graduated college, I did what everyone else does. I called a big box insurance company and I insured everything I owned, which was a car and a set of golf clubs. But thankfully life changes and your insurance should change too. Fast forward a few years and I have a family, a house, and all the responsibilities that come with that. Hub personalized my insurance to make sure my family wasn't at risk. So now if I get in a fender bender or a tree falls on my fence, both things that have happened, I call and talk to a real person a person that knows me and I have a relationship with. I know I'll get great service and I know I'll be covered no matter what happens. Go to hubinternational.com and learn more about how you can upgrade your insurance experience. Today's conversation is with Jesse Menachem, Executive Director and CEO of MassGolf, the State Golf Association in Massachusetts. He's been with the organization since 2004 when he was an intern before becoming the Director of Rules and Competition, and finally the Executive Director in 2013. Jesse is also the President of the International Association of Golf Administrators. He's dedicated his life's work to improving the game of golf and has a unique perspective on the game. Jesse, welcome to the Course Record Show. Thanks so much, guys. Let's jump right in. The Mass Golf mission statement is to advance the game of golf in Massachusetts by building an engaged community around the sport. I'm particularly intrigued by the use of the word advance. In a state as rich in golf as Massachusetts, what does advancement mean? Great question. And, and I would say it means a lot. And I think that speaks to who we've become as an organization. We are a 100-year organization who merged with another back in 2018. So the MGA and the WJM, Massachusetts Golf Association, Women's Golf Association of Mass, became one. So you combine two longstanding formidable organizations into one. And we rebranded as Mass Golf. We really refreshed who we are and rethought who we are as we want to plan for the future. So our mission is truly to continue to evolve and make sure we're keeping up with the game, with expectations, with demands. And I think it's just a continuous evolution. And I would say we're pretty much in phase one of that right now. So we want to stay ahead and do as much as we can, <clears throat> excuse me, to keep the game sustainable, but to keep it growing at the same time. What do you think the most misunderstood aspect of the role that state golf associations play in managing the game is? Yeah, I think for, the, for a long time, well, many of our organizations were introduced to host state championships. So I think that's what we're mainly known for. And, and oftentimes we probably get pulled into the, the bucket of you know, speaking to or catering to your elite amateur golfer. But the reality is we do so much more 
those state championships certainly get the spotlight, but we have a membership of a hundred thousand golfers and, you know, our championships really cater to about five or 6,000 golfers. So our services through, by way of our member clubs and to our individual golfers through handicapping, through course rating, through value added services, that's really who we are and what we're all about. And access is key, you know, whether it's through some of our junior programs, youth on course, it's really about serving all golfers, all clubs throughout the state. And I think, I think oftentimes we can get kind of, I don't know if scrutinize is the right word, but put into that light where it's just about the elite amateur golfer, when in fact, we're working here every day for all golfers all the time. How do you see your role personally in this uh, ecosystem? Are you a regulator? Are you a cheerleader? Are you a catalyst, a curator, or something else altogether? I'd say all of the above at any given time, at different points of the year or the season, or depending on how the industry is evolving, we may be wearing a different hat. And I think last year probably speaks perfectly to that with the pandemic, when we didn't know if golf would be opening, when it would be opening, how it would be opening. So we became advocates, we became cheerleaders. But in a more normal year, as we're starting to get back into we're champions of the game. You know, we want to celebrate the game. We want to celebrate players' accomplishments, certainly the youth movement that we're seeing. So it, it really depends on the year, on the project or the objective. But I think that speaks to who we are as mass golf. We're golf for the masses. Tell me a little bit more about the youth movement. Are you talking about juniors under 18? Or are you talking about a younger generation that is playing golf in hoodies with their hat backwards? What are you talking about there? Uh, a little bit of both, but I, I think my intent was more around where golf is going in, in our state. We have seen specifically our two state amateur champions, for example, incredible college players who, who really came up through the ranks. They play, they practice all the time. One's playing for Harvard, one's playing for Stanford. And we're, we're just seeing these trends in some of these tournaments and events where we're seeing a new wave of youth and, and the core of it is quite remarkable. You know, I, I talked to some colleagues around the industry, locally here, being a seasonal state, you know, we didn't always have this many junior golfers playing at the level they are. And I think with technology, I think with different facilities that have come about throughout the state and beyond, you've got players that are able to keep a club in their hand 12 months out of the year. So it's really, it's changed the game. And I think it's put Massachusetts and some of your seasonal state associations more so on the map. So you brought it up. I was going to, I'm down in the South. We can pretty much play 12 months a year. How do you as an organization keep that momentum through the winter? Is it all about screen golf? Is it all about simulator golf? Or are you guys actively have programs that tries to make it a 12 month engagement? Yeah, I think we, we accept who we are up here. We've got some coastal golf courses, which is great. So you can get away with playing some golf out on Cape Cod 12 months a year, but for the majority of us, I think uh, many do tend to shut it down, but you do still have some opportunities to stay in tune with the game. You know, if it is simulators through a screen, but that actually kind of speaks to who we become as an organization. You know, we're, we're a community of golfers, so we want to keep the engagement strong. Uh, certainly our, our handicapping season will end come November 14th, but we have opportunities to communicate with golfers, with clubs throughout the year. Uh, to keep them engaged, whether it's through health, wellness, and fitness, sharing stories, preparing them for another season, 
and even working you know, with different parts of the country to start with some member travel and, and keep people really entertained and engaged with golf 12 months throughout the year. That's awesome. Talking about the organization behind Mass Golf, give us a little peek behind the curtain. How are you structured? How does it all work to come together to deliver all this experience on your mission? Certainly, yeah. We're, so we are, per our bylaws, we're an association of member clubs. So we have 360 member clubs across the state from Cape Cod all the way out to Western Mass. And by way of those member clubs, we have over 100,000 individual golfers on our membership roster, those who hold a gin handicap index. We are a volunteer driven organization. We have a board of 14 and we have a committee structure that ties into our respective departments on staff. So as executive director, I oversee and work with the board, work with our staff of 22. So our departments align such that we have our championship department, communications and marketing, finance administration, member services, which is a, a major ticket for us, and um, junior golf development, first team Massachusetts. So all of our committees do align with those teams. Our staff has built out quite a bit, as you can imagine, over the last few years. But really, we, we try to work in concert with one another. I think it's, it's unique that we have our junior golf bucket under the umbrella of Mass Golf, where we've had the first tee as part of our, our core, as part of our mission for over 20 years. We own and operate a par three golf course here in Norton, which is really the home of the first tee in Massachusetts. But it's just the home base where we have other program locations scattered across the state. So, you know, the organization is driven by the board, but we really try to strike that balance between volunteer leadership and execution at the staff level. There's so many organizations that play a role here, right? There's the there's Mass Golf, PGA of America, USGA. Like how and they, they share similar missions, it seems. So, how would you consider? Mass Golf's lane in that ecosystem to be distinct from or the other orgs that I just mentioned? Yeah, I, I think what it, what it comes down to is that we're local. You know, we are that local touch point where we're communicating, connecting with the club leaders and the golfers. We are an allied golf association of the United States Golf Association. And I think this is now three years of the AGA partnership that was formulated. And in a way, we're, I've always... I've always put ourselves in kind of the, like the, the major league, minor league baseball realm where USGA is kind of your major league association. And we're not AAA, but you know, we're the affiliate, you know, we're, we're the local affiliate to help grow the game, support the game, carry out the initiatives of, of what the USGA offers, but do it with a little bit of a, a twist or flavor of our own. Cause we have that ability. We have the familiarity and through our volunteer network, through the events that we host, we can really be our own, but channel up through some of the national initiatives that, that might be going on. So let's take one of those specifically handicapping. It's something that the USGA really hangs its hat on, and you've already mentioned it twice. If I'm a golfer in Massachusetts, I sign up through my local club or through, the, through Mass Golf, and then you feed that up, that revenue up to the USGA, and then they provide the platform for the gin system. Is that how it works? So the, we are basically an affiliate to provide gin handicapping in our geography. That, that's what allows us to be that allied golf association. So there is some, some revenue share there between 
the state association and the USGA, but the bulk of it does does remain with us because it's our it's our core service. It's what we offer to our golfers, and it's really no secret. It's what drives our our operation in many ways, but it allows us to support everything else that we do, whether it's hosting hosting a uh, club leadership forum, first tee program, supporting the youth on course program. But the handicap is key. That's really the that's the driver that that helps with engagement in many ways but it's built into our overall membership. So it's a component of what we offer. It's essential to the game of golf. It, it, it's what makes us very unique as a sport. And it's something we track very closely and thrilled to say that we continue to grow our, our membership and our members with gin handicaps. What would you say about, I was having lunch with somebody in the industry yesterday and they were talking about the handicap system and how he simply doesn't have a handicap, doesn't need one. He's not an avid enough or good enough golfer to use a handicap. How do we bring back to the youth conversation? How do we bring a beginner, somebody who starts at top golf or starts at these places? They can't shoot a legitimate score, but they're liking the game. How do we design a system so that they get under the mass golf umbrella when they're not going to post a score, but they want to play nine holes a few times a year. They want to be able to track some progress. They want to move from, let's say a white belt to a yellow belt. And then the black belt is maybe where you get your gin handicap. Is there conversations around that? I thought it was an interesting take and I wanted to follow up with you because you're so close to it. It's a great question. And it's something we've, we have been slightly challenged with because I think, I think you nailed it. A, a lot of those golfers that don't have one just say, I may not play enough or I'm not good enough. And the reality is it's a player performance tracker and the name handicap index probably isn't doing us too many favors in a marketing promotional standpoint. So if we were to kind of spin it in a way that you just described, I think it may help more golfers understand that this is something that's going to allow you to engage with the game. It's going to allow you to benchmark yourself against your friends, your family, your peers, or any average Joe that might be on the first tee. Um, so it's just, a, it's a really neat, cool way to enjoy the game, have a level of competition that really no other sport is, is able to offer. So through the world handicapping system, I think that was an incredible development to really level the playing field and have your handicap be able to travel. Um, so I think it's really about, you know, educating, storytelling a little bit and kind of bringing the, the nomenclature out of it. And just, you know, simply saying, this is a, a player performance tracker that's going to help you throughout your journey of the game. Never play the person who doesn't have a handicap. I learned that the hard way a couple weeks ago, and it was <laughs> brutal. <laughs> yeah, you never like those first tee arguments, right? Not good. I, it was lost before it started. Switching gears a little bit, Jesse, let's talk about some of your events. What's the process for securing venue for championships and tournaments? Is it more like begging clubs to allow you to do it? Are they active for it? How does that work? So we very much like to form partnerships with our member clubs. You know, there's a, a sincere alignment there, but ultimately we have over a hundred events that we might be running in a given year from a state championship to a tournament, to a member day, to a USGA local qualifier. So we've been working very closely with club leaders to really match up what might be a fit for them. You know, who would they want to see at their facility you know, to showcase and, and, and to promote what they have to offer. But then we also want to make sure we're balancing each and every one of our events or championships to make sure that we're hitting 
every part of the state. So for example, for the mass open or the state amateur, we wanna make sure we're offering a qualifying event on Cape Cod, on the North shore of Boston in Western mass, because you know, when you think about it, it, it could be two and a half, three hours to go from east to west. And we wanna make sure we're catering to different communities, showcasing different parts of the state. But I would say ultimately we try to game plan out with each, each host club, put some packages together. So work out maybe a five or six year plan in certain cases and offer a few different, you know, diverse opportunities, whether it's a senior event, a junior event, a women's event, you know, to make sure that we're able to cast a, a wide net and, and be as inclusive as we possibly can. Sounds like you're ahead of the USGA because their plan on these so-called anchor sites is when you know what's coming, you can invest in, in the club, in the infrastructure to host events. And whether that's a U.S. Open or, or a state level event, I think it makes sense. When you have a long-term commitment, your performance is better in all industries. So I think that's a really smart way to look at it. Yeah, it, it's helped us a lot. And, and you know, I'd say in some ways we've kind of given a taste of that anchor site concept. We, we have certain clubs that will will offer to host the amateur, the women's amateur every 10 years. And it, it's kind of a, a known part of the relationship that we try to work in. And it's a tremendous offer on their part. And I think players really appreciate that because, you know, they can forecast out and plan for the future and say, I had an incredible experience here, you know, five years ago and can't wait to do it again, you know, just a few years down the road. All right, talking about events, you're hosting the granddaddy of them all next year. The U.S. Open comes to the country club at Brookline. What opportunities does that open up for golf in the state? And what responsibilities does that come with for you? We are excited to put Brookline on the, on the main stage once again. We can already tell the interest and the demand is, is just through the roof. We're working closely with, with the USGA as our partners. I think it's really unique specifically next year. Unfortunately, we don't have a PGA Tour event in Massachusetts next year, but that also may be a good thing because it puts the spotlight on Brookline, on the U.S. Open, and I'm sure in the future there will be a PGA Tour event back in the state. But um, really, I think there's a lot of opportunities. Of our 360 member clubs, we're about two-thirds public access. And I think through the NGF, National Golf Foundation, there's about 650,000 golfers in the state. So we have 100,000 right now through our membership. And I think that just shows how much of an opportunity there is to bring in more golfers into the fold, whether it's you know through our membership channels, but just through the game, getting people touching a club, playing nine holes. I think we all know golf is not that 18 hole round anymore. So if the U.S. Open can help drive some continued momentum that we've seen the last 18 months, two years, I think it could be tremendous for the golf ecosystem here, for awareness, for engagement. The, the stories coming out of the Ryder Cup in 99 at Brookline continue to amaze me, right? The stuff that happened on the ground, fan engagement uh, of all forms continues to be really interesting. So you mentioned there's no PGA Tour event annually in Massachusetts anymore. Remind me what the structure is here. The Northern Trust will be up there once every three years or something. And then I'm a big believer that when people attend a tour event in person, they fall in love with golf and they become lifelong fans of the tour. It's such a great product in person. So thoughts on that. And then also, how often are we going back to, to Massachusetts? 
it's a little bit unknown right now. What originally started as the Deutsche Bank Championship then became a FedEx Cup stop over Labor Day weekend. And most recently, that transitioned into the Dell Technologies and then the Northern Trust. And the Northern Trust was rotating back and forth um, between Boston and New York. They have reshuffled, realigned some of the stops for the FedEx Cup. So it is a bit of a question mark what could become of a, a Boston tour stop in the future. Got it. But TPC Boston is here in the backyard. It's part of that PGA Tour network. And I would have to imagine that they'll be back on the schedule as soon as possible. Yeah, great golf course. I always enjoyed my time there. Fun course. 18th hole is, I think it might have been redesigned after the first year or two, but it's a great finishing hole. It's a perfect length and perfect risk reward. It's a cool hole. Couldn't agree more. Always an exciting finish there. Just great for... Uh, Great for the atmosphere. Great for, for everybody involved around it. By the way, the atmosphere, people ask me, what are the fans like? The fans in Boston and New York are a totally different level. I am convinced that this Ryder Cup at Bethpage is not going to work. Like it's that is going to be a problem. It is a whole different, a whole different situation up there. I think it's going to be absolutely bananas. We've got some passionate fanatics up here. Whatever sport we're talking about, they're going to come in droves and they are going to be committed, no doubt. <laughs> committed is a good word for it. <laughs> a quick reminder to go to hubinternational.com. Don't wait until you get in a car accident or have a tree laying across your roof to get a high-quality, high-touch insurance company. Hubinternational.com. So Jesse, you're also the sitting president on the International Association of Golf Administrators, or the IAGA. What's the role of the IAGA in this ecosystem of golf? So ultimately, we're a conglomerate of state regional golf associations, mainly in North America. We've been expanding a bit in, in recent years, but it's an opportunity for staff to get together, collaborate, and network, and really share best practices for the betterment of golf and the golf ecosystem. Um, the USGA, Golf Canada, they've been a part of the organization for a very long time, but it's an opportunity for us to, to make sure that that golf is healthy in all parts of the country, the region, and we continue to advance. I think advance comes up once again, whether it's the Mass Golf Mission or IAGA's mission, but I think it's a, it's a concerted effort by these individuals and these organizations to make sure that golf is sustainable and that we offer the most consistent and best opportunities for our members, for our member clubs, and really to, to, to be a community, to be partners. And no idea cannot be shared or, or stolen, if you will. We're all doing this for, for the same reasons, but we're just doing it in different pockets of uh, the country or the region. So it's a very healthy, engaging opportunity and just a friendly network that uh, I've been proud to be a part of. What kind of business problems do you guys tackle? Is that a lot of it? Because it seems to me that golf has a lot of bureaucracy and overlapping organizations. So let's just say state golf associations. Is this an organization that keeps the 50 state golf associations from working on the same problems independently? So rather than all of you in your state working on the same problem, you can say, hey, I solved this problem. Here's the solution. And share it with others. Is that the intent of the organ? Is that the intent of the IAGA? 
In, in, in many ways, yes. You know, it's not just about those little tweaks and modifications you can make to a, an event or a championship. It is about that bigger picture and making sure we can work as a team if it is problem solving. And a perfect example of that is we have a, a New England Golf Association here in the region and we connect and collaborate throughout the year. But it's the perfect example of working through an IAGA type of organization that we can share what our problems or concerns might be that could be relevant to another part of the country and vice versa. In California, there's huge water problems and inevitably that's going to make its way east and we all need to be prepared for that. So, you know, from an advocacy standpoint, that's top of mind. And I think, again, to highlight last year, in some ways it was devastating, but for golf, it, it became a bit of a silver lining through the pandemic. And I couldn't tell you how many times I was on the phone with colleagues from around the country just to say, what was the best method of working through your state, your governor? What really moved the needle to help them understand why golf needs to be open? And that's a prime example of how the IAGA works and, and how we really connect with one another, not just at an annual conference, but throughout the year. So you mentioned covid as a Massachusetts golfer, I, I, I witnessed a lot of the, and try to track a lot of the discussion between the governor's office here, the city governments here, and all that went into reopening golf in Massachusetts in the spring of 2020. I think we we're one of the last states to reopen, if I remember correctly. Take us there. What, what were the conversations like? What was your role here? What were some of the, what were some of the unique moments you experienced in all of this? We might need to write a book at some point about 2020 and, and golf, but it was rather unique. I think the entire situation around the world and country was new. And I think what it came down to was golf is about the people and the community that we have. So for many years in Massachusetts, we've been part of the Alliance of Massachusetts Golf Organizations, and it's really the, the collective of all the state and regional associations here. So your golf course superintendents, PGA professionals, club managers, golf course owners. So there's a group of about nine of us and oftentimes we'll collaborate and work together on behalf of the golf community, on behalf of the industry here. We've done a state golf day economic impact study. So having that group really in the periphery, it was an opportunity to say, we need to work together to make sure golf gets back open and open in a safe and successful way. So we engaged that group really immediately. And the first thing that we needed to achieve was to, to get golf courses just back open to be maintained. Because as we know, those are the assets out there. We need to make sure courses are healthy and can sustain the entire season because it was, I think it was April, the Masters was happening. And we need to make sure that if and when we had golf courses to play. So we engaged with that group. We were able to get golf courses maintained. And then it took kind of a multi-step process from there to get golfers back on the golf course. It was ultimately May 7th of 2020. It's now a holiday on my calendar, but it was, it was very unique. As I mentioned before, we leaned on some of our colleagues from around the country to see what was working in their jurisdiction and their geography in Massachusetts. COVID really took on a, a different life. You know, I think in, in some ways that the pandemic kind of started here, but it, it also, it was at its peak here in Massachusetts. So 
we want to be careful with that. We want to be respectful as, as a golf community. I think it, it speaks to uh, who we are as golfers with, you know, integrity, honesty, respect. We just worked in a, in a very polite, respectful way through the Lieutenant Governor, Governor Baker. And ultimately we, we were the last state to open up, but I think we did it in a way, a way that was beneficial for everyone under the circumstances we were all facing. We live in a time where everything is so political and so divisive. I'm curious how golf plays a role in that. Does, does golf reach across the aisle or is it, is, a, is it really a partisan fight when it comes to reopening golf and even talking about golf in the realm of politics? I think just, just the, the nature of the game, I think golf can serve as that, that facilitator or that glue in many ways to get people together and almost level the playing field, if you will. It's an enjoyable experience, enjoyable atmosphere. But I guess on more of the, the nuts and bolts side of it, it's also big business. It drives, drives the economy. That's a $2.7 billion industry, 25,000 jobs throughout the state. And I, I think that's, that's hugely important for the Commonwealth. And I think many in, in the state do recognize that. And it's, it's a healthy activity. And I think that's what we were able to really lean on last year that we became that first safe recreational activity to enjoy. So again, I, I think I'd go back to my original comment to say that in many ways it can, can bring people together and, and you know, be a, a safeguard, an outlet, and an opportunity in that respect. Since you guys reopened, golf has boomed all across the country. What's that boom been like in Massachusetts and what's it going to take to sustain it going forward? It's been remarkable. Actually, we had our annual meeting yesterday and I just commented how fun this has been to see where, where golf is going. We've got wait lists. We've got a membership growth. You know, we're seeing junior activations through first tee and youth on course like we've never seen. Um, and I think, I think awareness is really key right now. I mentioned it earlier, but you know, we were stuck in that rut that, that golf had to be 18 holes. It had to be overly traditional. And I think we're finally over that hump to say, you know, make golf fit into your lifestyle, however that might be. If it's hanging out with some buddies at a top golf or at a driving range, playing nine holes before after work, um, you know, almost like shooting hoops for, for a half hour, you can have that golf experience. And I think it's finally accepted. And I really... I believe and I hope that that can continue, but I think that's what's going to allow us to be most sustainable here, to continue the momentum, continue the surge, keep people engaged and intrigued with the game. And from our standpoint, make sure the experience is great, but also cater to any golf enthusiast or you know, anyone who might be involved, whether they're just starting with the game or perhaps, you know, they may not be able to play as regularly and they just want to be a fan of the game. I love how you articulated that and how you talked about making golf fit into your lifestyle. And circling back to the handicap system, that's why the gym feels like an antiquated way to keep tally of how the growth is happening in, the, in a state or across the country. There's so many new ways to get engaged. And it, I love everything you just said about where golf is going and having a system that a player incentive or performance system that matches that new world, I think is going to be important and someone will do it. And I think it has, but it, it just made me think of that previous topic. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, lifestyles have evolved and I think that's, that's hugely essential for any business, but especially when you're in service and you're in a, in a recreational sport, like we are, and we've all seen the model change, even at the the club facility level. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the hoodies and, and, you know, some different type of lifestyle engagement. So, you know, there's a balance there from tradition to evolution. I agree. I think golf is going to be like a lot of things. I don't want to say segmented, but you're going to have traditional golf and that's good. Putting on having a dress code, taking your hat off inside or having to change your shoes in the locker room. That's fine. That's all good. It's tradition and it, and you, there's a place for that. But I think we're going to have very distinct buckets where that's one sort of golf. And then the other sort is driving range with your buddies. And that's good. It's the more the merrier. And I think we're getting over the fact that they're different things and it's okay to act and behave and, and treat them differently. Couldn't agree more. So, so, so let me pull a thread there. If, if we're going to bring in new golfers, grow the game, how constrained are we by capacity of facilities and professionals, et cetera? Do we have room to grow? Do we have to build more courses? How do we accommodate all that? Um, I think we've seen a little bit of a taste of, of the issue around demand in the last year. You know, tee times are, are tough to acquire in some respects, but we're starting to see that level off a bit. Folks are getting back to work, getting back to other, other types of routines. I, I don't think, I don't think we're there yet that it's going to be a major issue. And, and that probably goes back to making golf what you want of it, because there are so many ways to experience it and different time blocks, different elements to consider the top golfs of the world are, are booming and there's competition out there in, in that realm. You've got even, you know, mini golf course type models that are coming out similar to a top golf experience. And I think that's going to continue to evolve and bring in different new segments as well. So I, I think it's been healthy that, you know, your green grass facilities from a supply and demand standpoint are starting to, to balance out and get to a, a more healthy place. But I think it's more about that, the onboarding and, and finding those different ways to get these newer laps golfers back into the game. And I think there's still tremendous opportunity there, even from an infrastructure and, you know, stability standpoint. All right, Jesse, we're going to get some quick hits, but I have to ask you this question. Course record show, we focus on the business of golf. I've been taking some notes throughout our conversation. And here's my tally so far. We have Mass Golf, which was a merger of two organizations, Alliance of Massachusetts Golf Associations, the New England Golf Association, the IAGA, which rolls into an allied golf association, 59 of those are under the USGA. Private equity has made a lot of money and a habit of rolling up fragmented industries, whether it's fast food, whether it's car washes. Now they're going on to HVAC and all these. Is there a world, you're a part of a merger that happened in 2018 at Mass Golf. Is that going to happen in the golf world? Is it too fragmented and will this all get rolled up over the next 25 years? I don't know. I don't think it'll get rolled up necessarily. I think it'll become more streamlined. And I think many of us who lead organizations and are involved in these types of conversations acknowledge that and know that things can likely be more efficient and effective if we pull things together and pull resources. I don't think it's going to get to the extreme of, of what you just referenced there, but I think it'll be tighter, cleaner, and more effective for the end user, ultimately. 
and for us to conduct our businesses in the most sound and efficient way. So we've seen benefit of that over the last three years, the, the MGA WGM merger here, it, it's been talked about for over 10 years and it took the right people to come together to finally do that. But it's, it's become a more efficient and effective organization, operations, and ultimately for that end user, it's becoming simpler. Our clubs have one organization to call to if they need a service or to, to work through an issue. Our players know we are that resource. Our golfers know this is where their membership is coming from. So I can see that happening and scaling, say, over the next 5, 10, 20 years. Um, but I think there's also huge importance to the different segments and organizations within the golf industry. We all have different responsibilities in some ways, but we're also part of the, the grow the game mindset at the same time. That's cool. I love how your members now have one, like you said, it's customer facing. There's one organization in Massachusetts that they deal with. That's a big win. So Jesse, I am a poor golfer, but I am a sicko for the game but I compare myself to you and I'm nowhere close to the level of dedication you've had for the game. You, you devoted your entire career up to now, to the game of golf. So what I'm, what I'm curious to know is when you look back, whenever you hang it up and your career in golf is over, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. Well, thank you for that. For one, you know, I, Mass golf is all I know. I was an intern for the organization for, for three years. I ran our championships and now as executive director, I think, I think from a, a legacy standpoint, it would really be about building the strongest community possible and, and, and getting us working and, and rowing in the same direction, um, making sure this organization can be sustainable and be as strong as it possibly can for the next hundred plus years. I've seen it grow from very much a mom and pop to a very legitimate business. And from a staff of when I started of about eight to now 22, it's an incredible movement. And I, I think, I think it also goes back to the whole lifestyle component of, of where we see golf fitting. And I think striking that balance ultimately and making sure that golf can be for anyone, anyhow, anywhere is what's, what keeps me going, keeps the ideas flowing. And I think if we can continue to, to make progress on that, I'll be a happy camper and we'll be in great shape for a long time. That's great. Congratulations on the work you've done so far and where you're going. I think Broad statistics can be misleading sometimes. Unemployment numbers, like if you want to car sales, go to the car lot and talk to the guys that are selling cars if you want to know what the car business is going like. You guys had eight to service a membership, and now you have 22. So you tell me if golf is growing or if membership, it's absolutely growing. You guys aren't just sitting around doing nothing. You have 22 people servicing golf in Massachusetts, triple what you had previously. That's awesome. It really is. It's, it's been cool to see the evolution of it and, you know, to, to also have our, our core of volunteers that help support this game. You know, we've got over 300 volunteers, whether it's as a tournament or rules volunteer, a course raider, a junior golf coach. That's also what really impresses me that we've got this whole ecosystem that works together for the betterment of the game. All right, Jesse, you survived the deep in-depth questions. We're going to mix it up on you a little bit with a couple of segments here. 
I'll lead us off with one called tap-ins. These are mostly about golf, kind of more quick hits, first thing that comes to mind kind of questions. You ready? Let's go. All right. Coolest part of your job? Oh, man. The people. They're great. They're great to be a part of. They, they keep me going. And to me, it's always been about relationships. The 22 or the 100,000? Even more. The staff at our clubs, the 100,000, the staff and volunteers that we work with. It's really the, the whole collective. You know where I'm going next. Least favorite part of your job? Um, Keeping track of all the acronyms. <laughs> you did a good job note-taking there, yeah. Least favorite part of the job. Let me get back to that one. Sorry. Yeah, I, I get right. Just as so long as it's not media obligations like this, then it's okay. <laughs> I'm not fulfilling your quick tap in responses here. Amateur okay. pod, amateur podcasting. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, good segue. You recently announced your Massachusetts Golf Hall of Fame inductees for this year. The categories are player, professional club teacher, builder, or innovator. Where do lowly podcasters like us fit in? I think you guys are. I think you guys are a hybrid. You're building and you're innovating because you're helping to share the the business of the game, the importance of the game, but you're also extremely receptive to to where the game is going and and being nimble and being versatile. So I think that somewhere in the middle there. Was that a formal nomination for Dan's induct, induction, or are we not there yet? I was asking for a friend, asking for That's a friend. Right. Full disclosure. All right. When it comes to golf, walking or riding? I really enjoy walking and I've, I've adopted that, you know, mid-am pull cart as of late. Push cart. Nice. Play 100 holes in one day or play 18 holes six days in a row? I just played 100 holes in one day for a 100 hole hike. Um, How'd that go? It was great. Um, did you walk? I did. I Holy did. Cow. Yeah, we had an incredible fundraiser for it, but I'm going to go with the 18 hole option. I, I won't ask you about your feet after that. Day. Yeah, I wasn't going to get into it either. <laughs> <laughs> On the course, music or beverages? Music. I'll save the beverages for post game. Smart. COVID related question. Do you prefer putting with the cups up or down? Oh, down. No doubt. <laughs> I do too, but I miss my scores from last <laughs> Do you want to go back to the least favorite part of the job? Yes. <laughs> yes, let's go back. I would have to say just the 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 constant juggle. You know, there, there's there's a lot going on in our world. And being a seasonal organization, you've got to stay on top and ahead. And that comes with its challenges. You know, you want to put as much focus as you can on on one particular objective or goal, but at the same time, you've got to continue to juggle. So I don't know if it's necessarily my least favorite, but it, maybe it's my most challenging. Well said. All right, Jesse, my section is a little more business focused and it's called buy or sell. Quick hits again. Buy or sell. Tesla stock. Uh, buy. My son's a big fan. Buy or sell. Golf carts. Sell. Buy or sell. Simulator golf. Buy. Buy or sell. Top golf. Buy. When do we get one here? I'm dying for one. That's a good question. We'd love to have you down at our facility. We've got a couple simulators going. Nice. Dan's trying to talk his wife into putting one in his basement. So good luck. Wish him luck with that. Buy or sell Brady or Belichick? Brady. Buy or sell 
fully inflated golf balls or partially deflated golf balls? Oh, geez. The New England dig, huh? The Atlanta uh, dig comes next. Go ahead. Completely inflated. All right. <laughs> Buy or sell. Did the Falcons blow it or did Tommy Terrific win it in the 2017 Super Bowl? Tommy Terrific all day. Gosh. All right. On that note. We got some nice Georgia peaches, by the way, from the Georgia State Golf Association after that win. That's, that's not – I'm not over that, it. I'm not over that it. That day almost jeopardized my friendship with Roberto. I got to say, the, the <laughs> level of haterade coming off of him and the, the, the easy material he gave to smash down was, was just too easy to pass up. Oh, gosh. That was bad. It was bad. And you had a, you had a BC quarterback, too, at the time, didn't you? Still do, buddy. He's still here. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And he makes a million dollars a week for our two and four team. He's not the problem, though. He's a big golfer. He's like a two handicap, by the way. I will say I got to give Arthur Blank a lot of love. He's uh, he's an incredible man. So, yeah, feel bad Arthur, for that loss, but he's been a huge champion of what we do. Jesse, thanks a million for coming on. I think it'll give golfers a lot more clarity about people who like you who are working hard every day to facilitate, grow and engage people in golf. Well, guys, I want to thank you. It, it's uh, really been an enjoyable conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of share under the hood of what we do, but it's just been a lot of fun being with you. Thanks, Jesse. All the best. Thanks, guys. Dan, interesting conversation with Jesse, back-to-back New England guests on the show. One of our hosts is from New England by way of Brazil, so I'm not sure you count like Jesse counts, but... Really good combo. What jumped off the page of you? I pay enough taxes to count. Thank you very much. But uh, oh, what jumps off oh, the page? Here, here we go. I pay enough taxes to count. My goodness. Uh, no, really good conversation with Jesse. I think the it was interesting to see this topic play out because it's not the business of golf in a dollars and cents way, but it's the business of golf in the orchestrating the ecosystem and the rules of engagement and the whole fabric by which the business then takes place. So really good zooming out, so to speak, on the business of golf. Yeah, I guess it would I, be the, the governance of golf, right? And the governance the of golf. Business takes place under a umbrella of set rules and governance. Is that about right? That's right. That's right. Um, if there was a, a local board of directors in the game of golf, I think Jesse would be in one of those chairs. Yeah. So let me ask you this. We keep talking about the future of golf and how it looks very different than it looks now. Do you see mass golf's role needing to change in response to all these new ways of playing golf and new players in the game that might play screen golf? They might play top golf. Let's just call it next gen golf. We we need to find some term for this because every episode we keep talking about how the future of golf is going to include that traditional, you know, change your shoes in the locker room, join a country club, but it'll also have this whole, let's call it next gen golf. Does mass golf have to evolve to bring those players under their umbrella? Yes and no. I don't know if it has to evolve in terms of its remit and its overall sort of objective. One of the things that we talked about that I kind of see room for evolution in is making space for this group of golfers, right? We talked about, yeah, they're, they're learning it in part three courses. They're learning it maybe in a simulator. They're learning it in top golf, not here because we don't have one, but they're learning it maybe when they go on a trip somewhere. But where are these people actually going to play? Like, they don't need a country club, but our public courses are all sold out here. 
there's not a lot of room to develop anywhere close to Boston, at least. So I, I, I think about that group, if, if it's going to keep playing, it needs some kind of home, some kind of venue to do it. And I, um, I don't see room for that right now. Yeah, it needs a home and then it needs, you know, people are looking for a tribe. So I think right now they are, their tribe exists on Instagram and, and through social networks and, and personal networks as well. I think answering the question of how do we make Mass Golf feel like their tribe, next-gen golfers, would serve Jesse and Mass Golf well going forward. I agree. I agree. And, and we got to see how they play out, right? If does, this, does, that, does that generation convert into a quote-unquote traditional golfer? Does it keep growing its own lane and never cross over? Good question. I don't know. I think that ultimately will determine what the answer looks like. And I don't know if anyone's making bets on how that plays out. My bet is that it's going to be this whole other segment of golf that's playing in hoodies and jeans, right. And, and doing things that way. And, um, uh, and, and finding its own way to, of doing it, that would be not in conflict with, but, but very different than the country club model. Okay. So if that's going to, if that's going to grow in parallel, then I think about what the home for that is. So let me ask you, do you think it's additive? Do you think it's a bigger pie or does the pie get split up differently? And 20 years from now, there's a lot more next-gen golfers and fewer traditional golfers. Do you think it's a a zero-sum or additive? I think it's additive because for it not to be additive, for every sort of new age golfer you bring in, the only way it's zero-sum is if you're turning off a traditional golfer away from the game. Yeah. And I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I could be wrong, but I just don't think my hypothesis is that the numbers don't bear that out. Yeah. So, which is why I think there is room for both. Um, I don't think there's a cannibalization effect going on, at least at the state level. Now, how does it play out at the local country club? I don't know, right? There might be some of that conversation going on, but broadly speaking, it seems to be very additive. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, but I'm also going to put this out there to the world. You and I talked about it briefly, but maybe if we put it out there, we'll hold ourselves accountable. I feel like we sit around and talk about what next-gen golfers want, and we just pontificate on it. We, I want to get some of these folks on our show. We need to get their voices heard, because as much as me, you, and I'm a golf insider, I, I ran this idea by my brother, and he said, you should talk to Tyler. Tyler you know, joined this kind of smaller... Said Tyler played Division One college golf. Everyone I know is an insider. So we on the Course Record Show, we need to make it our charge to hear some different voices because me, you, and Brian Ferris can talk about what next gen golfers want. But come on, that's not a good representation of of that uh, population. So let's do that. All right, sign us up. Let's go. Okay. Now let's switch over to talking about the um, the role of a state golf association like Mass Golf. You were picking up on this. It's there are so many players in sort of growing and ruling and overseeing the game, right? State golf associations, the IAGA, which I only learned about because of the course record show, the USGA, all this kind of stuff that's going on, and, and there's there's more. But how do we? How do you think about this in the context of like creating distinct swim lanes for each organization? It feels very blurry at the moment. Yeah, New England Association of Golf. Uh, there's there was tons. I was writing them down when we were talking to Jesse, but it's a good question. I, and I would be curious to know the only ecosystem I know well enough is golf. And even these were unknown. A couple of those were unknown to me. 
is this what baseball is like? Is this what football is like? You don't really get a lot of adults that play football and a little bit baseball. So I guess it's a very different thing, but tennis, does tennis have this many layers of bureaucracy? Maybe it just speaks to the passion that people have for golf. I know some of those are trade associations and some of those are volunteer associations that, you know, like the USGA, all of these, there's a big volunteer part. So maybe there's just, we're over bureaucratized because people are so willing to give their time to something that they love. I think that's it. That, that has to be the way we got here because there is no business interest. I, I mean, these are all nonprofits, right? So there's not, right. there's not a great way to justify new market entry from using that language to want to you know, squeeze in some more profits and, and find jump into a pretty profitable pool. Right. And which, which is why I don't think it'll ever get rolled up because there is no, you know, you mentioned private equity, making a, a model out of this and, and throwing debt and squeezing out profits out of it. I just don't think that opportunity is there for the taking, not that conceptually it wouldn't be helpful in some ways, but, but the um, profit motives not there. You're saying, yeah, the dollars aren't there. So, um, so I don't see, so I agree with Jesse that that's probably not in the future for golf, but to your point, like how does everyone find their own way and, and make their impact? seems to be working. The game's doing well, but it is, you know, if you started the game of golf today and designed a system to, to, to rule it and to organize it, probably wouldn't look like the way it does now. What if somebody's just extremely power hungry? Like who's going to be the Vladimir Putin of golf that just wants to dominate everything and live forever? I don't know. It's not me, but is it you? I think, uh, no, it's not. (laughs) All right, Dan, one thing I'm curious about, I want to hear about golf reopening in Massachusetts. I feel like there was a lot there. Jesse stayed out of the weeds for obviously good reasons, but give me your perspective, waking up in the morning, reading the newspaper during unprecedented COVID times. And I'm sure you were following the golf conversation closely. Yeah. I mean, Jesse did allude to the fact that there would be a book or there could be a book based on everything that happened. And, you know, like I heard a lot of rumors, a lot of them are unconfirmed. So it's always hard to know what's true. So what's not true, but some of the big, what's unique about Massachusetts, it's a very blue state by and large, but ruled by a Republican governor and a a Republican Lieutenant governor. The governor, Charlie Baker is one of the most popular politicians in the country, despite this weird dichotomy in the state. But he happens to be very anti-golf, is what people say. Um, but the lieutenant governor, Karen Polito, is very pro-golf. So my understanding is that she was very supportive of the reopening and helping folks find a creative outlet to, um, uh, based on like mental health and all these things and recreation and, and help, sort of helping other officials in the state help make a case for reopening. So that's, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's what I hear from behind the scenes, what the, at that level of government, what was going on. What's strange is you will never have heard what, what makes it hard to confirm. You will never hear Karen Polito, like publicly talk about golf, right? Golf's a tough hill to die on politically, right? There's not, I mean, with with the way the political landscape is shaped, it's a really tough place to sort of want to garner votes and get a lot of public support. So, which is why a lot of this is behind the scenes, in my opinion. Yeah. But what about the economic impact? Like Jesse was saying, there's tens of thousands of people in Massachusetts alone that work in the golf industry. So I get that's not 
part of your stump speech and you're not singing from the rafters about golf, but why do you think the governor, okay, I'm, I'm curious about this. The governor is a Republican in a heavily Democratic state. Do you feel like he's anti-golf because it's seen, the last thing he wants to be seen by a left of center electorate is like a fat cat guy and a pro rich people, pro golf thing. Do you think that's why he's quote anti-golf? I don't know the answer, but I'll offer an opinion. I think that would be a legitimate train of thinking because yes, there, you could point to economic impact from reopening golf and having all this going and going on again. I think people react too viscerally and they, and they just think about shortcuts and heuristics and demographic kind of stereotypes about golf and, and other things too, that, that doesn't allow to even make the economic arguments uh, even, even come to the forefront. So I, I just think it's a hard hill to die on. Yeah. You're saying the photo opportunity in front of a perfectly manicured country club front steps isn't a good photo opportunity. Yeah. That that's not going to fly. So, um, so again, that, that's my analysis of it. Yeah. Um, and to our loyal listeners, that is as much politics as you're going to get on the course record show. So <laughs> don't worry. That's it. We're done. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, the, I took a class during my business school around the impact, the strategic decision-making in non-market environments, non-market meeting, working with the media, working with governments, working with NGOs, working with the court system fascinating. I came out of that totally with a new appreciation for the impact those things have, including a study that points to the, to the ROI. If you, if you don't lobby, you're being irresponsible to your shareholders based on ROI analysis. So okay. I found myself thinking back to those. Yeah, it was really interesting to talk about how to, how to, how to do that, what tactics to choose. Do you go through the Senate to push something through? Do you go something more locally? Do you go challenge it in the courts? All these decisions, and I never went into that field. I, I I I don't know enough about it to make a career out of it, but I know I learned enough in that class to have a, a very deep appreciation for these things. And in the time since I've graduated, which wasn't that long ago, the the role of the corporation in the social sphere has only grown. So it's it's a very blurry line where you can't just say, oh, my goal is to drive shareholder value, and that's it. Now you've got all these like different agendas and different objectives when it comes to the social sphere. That are hard to ignore. So, and this is a, again, Jesse's not in the business of golf per se, but this is a very clear example where going into advocacy was good for business and the only choice. And now we see how it's played out very successfully and the game's grown here in Massachusetts. And uh, despite being the last state to reopen. Good stuff. All right. That's it for us on the course record show. See you next time. The Course Record Show is produced by Roberto Castro and Dan Ferreira. Executive producer, John Robinson.